Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 20. Joshua chapter 20 this morning. Our study through the book of Joshua has brought us to chapter 20. And again, just to give us the context, we know that Joshua and the Israelites, through the power of the Lord, certainly have conquered much of the land of Canaan, much of the promised land. There's still more Canaanites that need to be driven out, but it's, gotten, it's reached a point where uh, enough has been conquered, and also then in Joshua's um, older years, that it was time to allocate the land, and we've studied that a couple of weeks ago. The entire land has been allocated to the various tribes, so that each tribe knows what portion of the land belongs to them as their inheritance. And so really, there's, there's just kind of two more things that need to be done, two more housekeeping things, two more major designations that need to be made concerning the land, and that involves cities of refuge and the Levitical cities. And these are the subjects of chapters 20 and 21, respectively, which is our text today. And so the title of the sermon this morning is Lessons from the Land. Lessons from the land. There are many things we can learn from these chapters about the character of God, about the carrying out of justice, about how we treat sojourners in the land. There's, there's all kinds of nuggets of truth and principles that we could glean from these chapters. But I sp- specifically want to highlight three applications for us today as New Covenant believers. And so I'll, I'll do that as we go through chapters 20 and 21. So let's begin by considering the cities of refuge, which will lead us in a moment to our first application. So look with me at verse 1 of chapter 20, then here in Joshua. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, let me pause here just a minute and and point out something that we probably have noticed several times as we've studied through Joshua. But what's taking place is, you know, back um, in in the the Pentateuch, right? Specifically back in Numbers and Deuteronomy, God commanded Moses what the Israelites were to do once they got into the Promised Land, and so. Now then, Joshua is carrying out those instructions. And so we see that explicitly said here where, where the Lord says, Do, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. So one commentator put it this way. It's, it's like Joshua and the Israelites are, are carrying out the script that's already been given to them through the, through the writings of Moses, which was through the instructions and commands of the Lord. All right, so... That, that's what they're doing. They're, they're living out, they're, they're playing out this script that the Lord has already laid out for them. And that is the case here today with the cities of refuge and the Levitical cities. Instructions for the cities of refuge are found in Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19. I wasn't going to have us turn there today, but you'll see detailed instructions there in those chapters about the cities of refuge. So Joshua and, and the leaders of Israel had the, those instructions, right, as they're doing this. And so now the Lord is just saying, hey, I want you to do what has been written, what you've already been instructed in how to do. Okay? So look again at verse 2 with me. The Lord says, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, 
that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment until the death of him who is high priest at that time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he has fled. Okay, so let's understand what's going on here. A city of refuge was a place of asylum for those who had committed what in our day and age we would call uh, unintentional manslaughter. Right? So I'll give you an example and, and I'll, I'll, then I'll use the terminology that the text here uses. Suppose Bill and Fred go out and are chopping down trees together. Right? But while doing this, Bill's axe head accidentally slips off and strikes Fred and kills Fred. Right? So in that case, Bill is, is the manslayer, right? But what could happen in, in a situation like that is when Fred's father and brothers find out what has happened, they may try to take vengeance, right? They would be the avengers of blood, as the text says. They're going to try to take vengeance on Bill because they're, they're grieving and they're angry that, that Fred has been killed. Right? Maybe they don't believe that it was an accident or, again, just in their grief and their anger, they, they, they retaliate. So in order to escape the danger of their retribution, Bill can flee to a city of refuge. He can, he can then stay in that city of refuge during which time the situation can be investigated and properly decided in the courts. And so again, this, this teaches us a lot about justice and God cares about justice and, and he doesn't want there to be vindic, uh, vindictive justice carried out, right? So in verse 7, then Joshua, in accordance with the Lord's commands given to Moses, establishes these cities of refuge throughout the land. Look at verse 7. So they set apart Kadesh and Gal. Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness of the tableland from the tribe of Reuben and Ramoth and Gilead from the tribe of Gad and Golan and Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. So if I could have the first slide, please. You'll see a a map of where these six cities of refuge were set up. So you can see how there's three on the the other side of the Jordan, right? Not even in the land of Canaan, because remember, that's where the two and a half tribes had their inheritance. And then there's three over here in the land of Canaan. And you notice how they're uh, intentionally kind of evenly distributed throughout the land, right? That, that was strategic so that, again, the manslayer, the unintentional killer, he, he, he needs to find safety quickly, right? And so hopefully there's a, there should be a city of refuge close to him no matter where he's at. 
where he can quickly escape the immediate wrath of the deceased family member, again, until the case could be properly decided. Of course, then, once the case was heard in court, if the manslayer was found guilty of murder, like if if they found out that, oh, he was actually lying, saying it was an accident, it was something he did on purpose, then the law called for capital punishment, and the city would give him up uh, so that that uh, punishment could be carried out. But if it was, in fact, found to be an accident, it's, it's interesting to note that the manslayer still had to stay in the city of refuge for an extended period of time. So even if it was, even if the courts decide, yes, this is an accident, the text says that the manslayer cannot just immediately return to his hometown. He cannot just immediately resume normal life. He has to stay until the city of refuge, until the high priest died. If he, if he leaves before that, he's, you know, it's like he's, He's kind of fair game. He's taking his life into his own hands there, according to Numbers 35. Biblical scholars are not clear on why that time frame was given. Like, why was it until the high priest died? It's probably simply because it marked the end of an era or the end of an epoch, we would say, right? Kind of the the, the death of the high priest marked a new administration coming in. And thus it kind of provided a reset for everything. But it, again, it's interesting to note that, you know, just little principles and nuggets we see in this that um, it, it shows the value that God places on life. All right, whatever the reason why he had to stay there for that extended period of time, it shows that even death by accident is still serious. God cares about life and and you know, thinking about the language of the Old Testament under the law, the blood has polluted the land, right? Life is sacred because every human is made in God's image. And so destroying human life, even if done accidentally, is costly. And that person has to stay there for, for an extended period of time. So the city of refuge provided safety for the manslayer, but it was also a place of exile. And like I said, cities of refuge teach us something about God's justice. They teach us, certainly teach us about the value God places on life. But what I want to draw your attention to this morning is how even the cities of refuge provide what we call a type of Christ for us. They point us to the truths of the gospel, and that's point number one today. Again, I've, I've worded these in, in kind of an application, uh, exhorting kind of way here. Point number one is run to Christ for refuge from your accuser. You know, when we think about the cities of refuge and how those were set up, it should remind us what we do now spiritually through the gospel is we run to Christ for refuge from our accuser. Again, it's not completely an apples-to-apples comparison because we know that as sinners we are guilty. Right? It's not a question of that. I mean, we know that, that we're not innocent. We have broken God's laws. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But by God's grace, through faith in Christ, we have been cleansed. We've been forgiven. And that's the great hope of the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ, is that we are forgiven. But then as Christians, we know, as forgiven Christians, we still struggle with sin, don't we? We, we still battle our, the, the sinful desires that remain in us. 
And as we do, as we battle that sin and as we stumble and fall and commit sin, what inevitably happens is we have an accuser. And Satan is called the accuser of the brethren in the book of Revelation. And Satan accuses us, and sometimes I think it's even just our own flesh accuses us when we sin. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, I don't know if you can relate to any kinds of thoughts or like this, but something along the lines of, man, what is wrong with you? You have messed up so many times. Maybe you're not a Christian after all. Real Christians would not act this way. Right? These are accusations. These are untruths, right? Maybe it's something like this. Others at church don't struggle like this. If they knew what was going on with you, they would be horrified. After what you did, you can't go to worship today. Everyone there is going to be judging you. It's, it's, it's like you're going to be a hypocrite. Or maybe, don't, don't even confess that to God. He is sick of forgiving you for the same thing over and over. Matter of fact, God is angry with you. You are such a disappointment to him. Just stay away from church. Everyone there has their lives all together, but obviously not you. You can't read your Bible or pray after what you've been thinking. You're in God's doghouse, and so you better just keep your distance for a while, right? Things like that. Accusations, untruths. And so what do we do when those accusations come? Well, I like the word refuge, right? You look through the Psalms several times, and it describes the Lord as a refuge. And the New Testament says that as well. Look at Hebrews chapter 6 with me, please. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. What do we do when accusations from the evil one come our way as Christians? We run to Christ for refuge. Of course, you know, we're jumping right into an extended uh, teaching that's taking place here in Hebrews, highlighting the the superiority of Christ and the gospel and the new covenant. But look with me at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. It's talking about the gospel there, right? We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And Hebrews goes into great detail explaining how how Jesus is our high priest, and how his, his uh, ministry as high priest is far superior to the priests in the Old Testament, right? They, had to, they were always offering sacrifices again and again for the sins of the people and for their own sins. But Jesus, the sinless one, offered himself once and for all. 
And he didn't have any sin that needed to be dealt with, but he offered himself for the sins of his people. And, And by doing so, he has provided atonement once and for all, for all who are united to him through faith. And because of that, that promise, we know that we are forgiven. We have sought him as a, for refuge from God's wrath, and we are forgiven, and now we have access to God the Father, even into the inner most holy place. And unlike, again, the, the priests of the Old Testament, Jesus is high priest forever. He lives forever, and his atonement lasts forever for his people. And so when accusations come our way, we run to Christ for our refuge. We run to the truths of the gospel for safety from our accuser. Remember all the accusations, the examples I gave you earlier. How do we counter that? What do we say? What does it look like to run to Christ? Well, it's to preach to yourself the truths of the gospel. Things like, I am forgiven. Yes, I sinned, but I know I'm forgiven because of Christ. I'm forgiven because Christ was forsaken. I fall short of God's standard every day, but I am clothed with Christ's perfect righteousness. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ, not even my own folly and sin. God loves me with a never-changing, never-ceasing love. I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. These are the truths we need to tell ourselves. This is what it looks like to run to Christ for refuge. Yes, I still struggle with sin. But even that struggle in and of itself is evidence that the Holy Spirit lives in me and is warring against my flesh, as Galatians 5 says. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. God has saved me by his grace apart from my works, and he will preserve me by his grace. And so thanks to the steadfast love of God and the finished work of Christ, we know that Jesus is a secure refuge for his people from the accusations of the evil one. And so, again, when we're studying the cities of refuge, we may think, well, that's kind of interesting, or well, maybe, or maybe that's not that interesting, whatever. That's how they were set up physically, but it reminds us of these truths spiritually, that Christ is our refuge. A verse to note, Colossians 2.15 says that at the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What do we talk about when we talk about that Jesus has defeated sin and death and Satan? Well, this is part of it right here. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. What does that mean? He took away their, their power for their accusations to do anything. Satan and his evil minions have been disarmed and defeated by Christ. They cannot take away our salvation. Yes, Satan still accuses. Revelation 12, I believe it is, says he accuses day and night before the Lord. He accuses the brethren. But his accusations will never stick. Why? Because our salvation is secure in Christ. This is the good news, loved ones. The verdict in God's courtroom has been rendered already, once and for all, for all who are united to Christ. And the verdict is we've been forgiven. We've been declared righteous on account of Christ's work on our behalf. And that's why, loved ones, we can run to Christ. Run to Christ for refuge from your accuser. 
Be reminded of God's great love for you. Be reminded of the finished work of Christ. And if there are any here today who don't know Christ, then I hope all this talk about refuge, I hope the Lord uses that to to show you you do need a refuge. You need Christ as your refuge. Not merely from accusations, but from the just wrath of God against your sins. Like all of us, the Bible says, you, you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You've sinned against your creator. God is holy and his justice demands that sin be punished. And the Bible says our sins deserve eternal separation from God in hell. But God in his great love sent his son and on the cross Jesus paid for the sins of all who believe in him. And Christ paid that penalty in full so that all who turn from their sins and trust in Christ alone are forgiven and will never face God's wrath. So run to Christ for refuge from the wrath of God. When we talk about being saved, right? Sometimes we we use that terminology and we don't even really explain what it means. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. And there's only one place that you can run for refuge from the wrath of God. And it's Christ alone. So if you've not done that, then run to Christ today in repentance and faith. Because if you don't, one day you will face the wrath of God. If you die still in your sins, it'll be too late. And you'll experience his wrath forever. But Christ is a sure refuge for all who turn from their sins and by faith embrace him as Lord and Savior. And I'm reminded as I think about this that you know, all the promises of Scripture that all who come to him, he will by no means cast out, that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We're reminded again and again of the heart of God, that the heart of God is, is ready and eager and willing to forgive and embrace all who humbly come to him in repentance and faith. And so that's the cities of refuge. That's, that's chapter 20. And it, what a beautiful picture it reminds us of, of Christ being our refuge. Then as we move into chapter 21, we get to the Levitical cities. And if you remember back in chapter 13, uh, when, when the, uh, we, the text first started talking about the different land inheritance that the tribes would receive, it was stated that the tribe of Levi did not receive specific land as their inheritance. Remember that? Because they had the special privilege of, of being ministers, of being priests, or of, of serving in the tabernacle, of, of, of being the ones to facilitate and administer the, different, the various sacrifices. And so the text said, hey, the tribe of Levi is not getting a certain chunk of land like the other tribes. Because the Lord is their inheritance, it said. And so that's true, <laughs> But even though the tribe of Levi was not given a specific area of land, they still needed to live somewhere. (laughs) And so again, back in Numbers 35, verses 1 through 8, it, it explains that 48 cities for the Levites were to be established throughout the land in all the tribes of Israel. And so now here in Joshua chapter 21, the time has come for those to be established. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 21 in Joshua here. 
Then the heads of the father's houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the, hand of, in the land of Canaan, The Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. Now, I wasn't going to go through the rest of chapter 21 verse by verse because it's a lot of names, right? But let me just give you the layout of the chapter. Here in verses 1 through 3 that I just read, it's where the the Levites come forward, and at least the the representatives come forward and, and claim their land in faith, which is... Interesting, by the way, that's a pattern we've seen again and again. We saw Caleb do it last week. In chapter 17, we see um, uh, daughters. I can't remember daughters of what their name was, but they come forward and do it as well. People coming forward and saying, hey, uh, this has been promised to us. Now we're, we're ready to receive it. We're claiming it in faith. And that's what the Levites are doing here. So that's verses 1 through 3. Then in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 21, the Levitical cities are determined by lot. And we've seen that before. That's how the land was originally allocated. But through the casting of lots, which is all directed under the sovereign control of the Lord. Then in verses 9 through 40, the Levitical cities are listed by name. And they go through the different descendants of, of the, Le- in the Levite tribe there. Okay? So now skip with me down to verse 41 of chapter 21. The cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its pasture lands around it, so it was with all these cities. Okay, so again, the Levites, even though they don't have their own chunk of land, they need some places to live, they need some places for their flocks to graze. Can we see the second slide, please? This shows us, I know it's smaller, but you see all those black dots there? Those are all the Levitical cities. The red dots are the cities of refuge, which were also Levitical cities. So all in all, there's 48 cities. So you have the six cities of refuge, then you have an additional 42 cities um, that are all Levitical cities. And so, of course, what you notice is how, again, they're, they're all spread out there, right? E- kind of evenly distributed throughout the lands. And we'll talk about that more in just a minute. But I want to just quickly draw your attention to the end of chapter 21. I'm not going to spend much time on it today, but it is a significant passage, and I want to make sure that we don't miss it. Look at verses 43 through 45 of of Joshua 21. This kind of gives us a power. Most of the chapter was dealing with the the Levitical cities, but then here and in, in the, at the end of 21 is kind of like a, a theological summary of where we've gone so far in, in the book of Joshua. Verse 43, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. What beautiful verses, right? What beautiful truths. Verse 43 summarizes, you know, if you, if you're, if you like the way books are structured and outlined, verse 43 there kind of summarizes thir- chapters 13 through 21 talking about how they took possession of the land, 
right? Verse 44 summarizes the victories of chapters 1 through 12, basically. And then verse 45 kind of encompasses it all, the entire narrative of the book of Joshua. But you see the overall uh, point is just saying God keeps his word. All of this took place just as he had promised. Not one word of his promise failed. And we're going to see similar language used in the closing chapters of Joshua. So that's why I wasn't going to spend a very long time on it today. But, but it's good to be reminded of that. That God keeps his promises. So I have two more um, lessons that I glean and I wanted to share with you from chapter 21 from these Levitical cities as we think about God setting up the tribe of Levi and dispersing them all throughout what again what does that teach us about living as believers under the new covenant now well number one or sorry number this is lesson number two in your notes the church of Christ is called to teach God's people the cities of of Levi reminded me of this this week that the church of Christ is called to teach God's people. You say, okay, why, why are you saying that? Well, understand the Levites not only served as priests for the altar. I mean, they did that. But Deuteronomy 33.10 also says that they were to be teachers of the law. So we see God's wisdom in dispersing the Levitical cities throughout all the land of Canaan so that all of God's people could be taught the law. It's like all these Levitical cities were meant to serve as bases of operation so that the Levites could instruct every tribe in in proper doctrine and worship under the Mosaic Covenant. So again, it just shows us what God values for his people. (laughs) He wants them to be taught God's word. And they need to be taught God's word. And certainly the New Testament makes this clear For the church. The New Testament says the church is to be doing this. To be teaching God's word. Colossians 1.28 says. Him, meaning Christ, we proclaim. Warning everyone. And teaching everyone with all wisdom. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. I love that verse. That's that's, that's the the verse. my, My vision for ministry. That was Paul's vision for ministry. That's the why. That's what got Paul up every day. Was he's like, I'm proclaiming Christ and, and teaching the gospel truths. Not just getting people saved, right? But the Great Commission involves more than that. Remember in the, Matthew 28? Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Yes, we want to see people converted. And then we want to see Christians grow in Christ's likeness. Be rooted deeper and deeper into Christ. And Paul says, that's why, that's why I proclaim him with all the energy God gives me so that the church can grow and mature into Christ's likeness and be that spotless bride that one day will be presented back to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Colossians 1.28. Ephesians 4.11 says, He, being, being the risen Lord Jesus Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
2 Timothy 2.2, when Paul is instructing Timothy, right, of what, how he should instruct the elders of the churches that, are, that were being appointed and established. He says, 2 Timothy 2.2, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you see the importance of teaching. Again, this, should, this is kind of like so obvious, but it's a good reminder for us today. It was a good reminder for me this week of, of what our role is as elders, right? To be teaching the saints, to be grounding them in, in truth, gospel truth, doctrinal truth, teaching them the word of God. Certainly, and we encourage this, by the way, we are all individually to be feeding on the word throughout the week, that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, 2 Peter 3.18, right? So we all should be uh, feeding on the word ourselves every day. But God has also gifted his church with teachers to teach the word of God to the saints. So that was a, a reminder to me. I hope it's an exhortation to you guys. I encourage you to take advantage of the many resources that are available to us today. And we are so blessed, right? We're so blessed with so many teaching resources. So let me encourage you, loved ones. Throughout the week, absorb solid teaching of God's word through podcasts and videos. Right? I mean, the information overload can be a blessing or it can be a curse, right? There's many things that distract us many things that aren't that helpful you know whether it's sports politics whatever but there's also a lot of good stuff out there too good solid teaching and we need to be submitting ourselves to it we need to be coming under that good teaching we need to be being taught the word of god and i need that too right if you want some suggestions come see me i'll I'll give you some some good ministries and podcasts. So that's one way. Throughout the week, absorb solid teaching through podcasts and videos. Another way is here locally. Participate in the Bible studies and classes that are offered here at Abounding Grace Church. I thank God for the teachers he gives us. And there's different studies that that go on throughout the week. There's the Sunday school hour. We just finished our class today. Like I said, we're taking the month of December off, but we're going to start a new one in January. And I I challenge you. Say, I'm going to come. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to come and be taught the word of God. Why? Because I want to be growing and maturing and becoming more like Christ. None of us ever arrive. And, And... I'm not saying you're always going to learn something you haven't heard before, but we need to be reminded of things too, right? It's not all about getting a new nugget. It's about being taught and reminded the same gospel truths again and again. God grows and protects his people through the teaching of God's word. God is glorified by, by his people as they grow through the teaching of his word. So let us be eager to place place ourselves under the teaching of God's word. He certainly designed the the nation of Israel to be under the teaching of God's word. Thirdly and finally then, our third lesson. 
Remember that in Christ, this fallen world is not your home. Remember that in Christ, this fallen world is not your home. I mean, the Levites, <laughs> they're like a living parable for us. And I think they were to be a living parable for the, even the people back then, God's people back then. Of, of, they were an example, a living example of holding loosely to the things of this world. Right? Why were they not given a, a land inheritance? Well, because their inheritance is God. But as we've said before, that's not only true of the Levites, that's true of all the, the true people of God. That our ultimate inheritance is the Lord himself. And we heard from our scripture reading that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they had that mindset, right? They were the ones to whom God had first promised to give the land of Canaan to their descendants. But what did they do? They dwelt in the land as nomads. They, they, they lived in tents. They were constantly moving around. They never had a permanent residence in the land that had been promised to them. They always lived in this, this status as pilgrims and strangers in the land. Why? Verse 10 of Hebrews 11 said, Because they were looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so that was to be true of all of God's people. And I think the Levites were a constant reminder of that. Because Deuteronomy 8 warns of, of, what, of the danger that could happen to them. Once they get into the land, they settle down and they forget the Lord their God. They get so enamored by the physical things and even by the physical blessings that they forget that God is the one who gave them that and they forget that God is their ultimate inheritance. But he graciously gave them Levites in their midst to, to jolt them back to reality. You know, so then when they'd see the Levites and be like, wow, you know, man, they just kind of have this little, little place for their livestock, but they don't have a big, vast land. Oh, yeah, it's because God is their inheritance. And Oh, yeah, Abraham, our father, believed the same thing. <laughs> Certainly the New Testament exhorts us to have that same kind of perspective. The New Testament again and again reiterates the truth for believers, calling us pilgrims and strangers in this world. 1 Peter 1.17 says, Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So he says, live your life as strangers here. Why? Because you've been redeemed. You've been bought out of this world. Like Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, I've called you out of this world. God has purchased us out of this world through the precious blood of Christ. And now we are in his eternal kingdom. Now we are citizens of heaven, Philippians 3.20 says. And so this fallen world is no longer our home. And I know old hymns say this, right? We're just pilgrims passing through. And we need to be reminded of that. Because we, we inevitably become too attached to this world. We inevitably just kind of start going with the stream of the unbelieving world, adopting their values, adopting their pursuits, placing our hope in the same things that they place their hope in. And that's not what we're called to do, loved ones. This fallen world is not our home. Praise God, he's going to remake this world. But this fallen world with its fallen values 
and pursuits is not our home. We have an eternal inheritance of never-ending life with God in glory. Remember, that's our inheritance. What is it? It's of, of resurrected life with the Lord in, in the new heavens and new earth. That's why 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17 commands us as believers, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. We need to be reminded of that, don't we? Because this is what it looks, the reason it's so easy to get distracted by the things of the world is because those are things we can see and touch and feel and taste, right? But we're called to walk by faith and not by sight. Remember, those things are temporary and passing away. And many of those things, not all of them, many of those things are directly opposed to the Lord, by the way. So why in the world would we want to be pursuing them, right? But even the ones that aren't, it's, you know, again, enjoy the blessings and, and, and use, use those uh, things of the world, I guess, to glorify God, you know. Let's glorify God in our jobs and in our relationships and in our family and our talents. But remember, the Lord is our inheritance, we are, seeking, we are called to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we do that as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ and as we remember his promises. So fitting that chapter 21 would remind us that he's faithful to those promises. That he's promised us that eternal inheritance that will never fade, that cannot be stolen or lose value as we saw from, from uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 last week. One that truly satisfies the deepest longings of our soul. That's the inheritance we've been given. The Lord himself. And as we think about that and remember that, it keeps us from chasing after other things. It keeps us from holding too tightly to things of this world. Only God can satisfy the longings of our soul. So let us pursue God and be encouraged that, remember, you have the down payment already. You have the Holy Spirit living inside you. You've been reconciled to God. You already have that relationship with him. And the Spirit is, a, is that deposit, that guarantee, promising future payment to come in full. That one day we'll be able to be with the Lord forever in glory. And so rather than living for the things and values of this world, we can enjoy now fellowshipping with God. We can focus now on bringing him glory because that's where our future is. We can give ourselves now to furthering his kingdom, knowing that one day the kingdoms of this world will all be destroyed and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Habakkuk 2.14 says. One day... We will enjoy God's glorious presence nonstop for all eternity. One day our faith will become sight. One day our Lord Jesus Christ will return and we will be raised and this world will be remade. And Revelation 21.3 says the dwelling place of God will be with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. 
we have that sure inheritance, loved ones. And until then, until that day, until the day of Christ's return, let us pursue Christ and his kingdom, remembering that this fallen world is not our home, that we are merely pilgrims passing through. Pilgrims who desire a better country that is a heavenly one, looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for, um, again, your grace, Lord, that you've lavished on us as we talk about um, having a, a sure refuge from your wrath. Lord, we know we deserve your punishment. We deserve eternal separation. But we thank you that in your grace and mercy, you sent your son to experience that in our place. And that he has um, satisfied your wrath for all who believe that he is the propitiation, that he is a sure refuge. So we thank you so much for that, that we can continue to run to him, Lord. And if there are any believers here today who are especially being um, uh, harassed, Lord, by the accusations of the evil one, I pray you would give them peace today. Lord, I pray you would encourage them with the truths of the gospel. Remind them of, the, of your promises of the gospel. Remind them of who they are in Christ. Remind them of your great love and of the finished work of Christ. You are faithful, Lord, even, even when we are, are unfaithful. And so we praise you that salvation is of the Lord. And Lord, we thank you not only for you being our refuge, but just for placing us in your kingdom and giving us... A, purpose that we we can um, seek to grow and become more like Christ that we can um, have the image of God more fully restored in us Lord all that sin is perverted and distorted that it can be uh, remade and renewed in Christ that you've given us this purpose that you've given us yourself Lord please I pray for myself and for all my brothers and sisters here please increase our our appetites and affections for you. Lord, you know the times that we live in. You know the, the things of this world just literally bombard us, Lord, and how drawn we are to them and how they can be dis- very distracting. Lord, please create in us a, a holy dissatisfaction for those things and, and cause us to, to run to you where we can find true satisfaction for our souls. Bless, bless us as we meet with you, Lord, as we by faith seek to spend time in your word, as we by faith put forth effort to come under your teaching. Lord, teach us, not just head knowledge, but teach us truth that we may better know you and relate with you and enjoy our inheritance of you. And we do all this with an eye and, uh, on, on the return of Christ. And, and we gladly want to grow and become a more spotless bride to be ready for his return. And so we say, come Lord Jesus and please continue to, to grow us and sanctify us. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me please and let's continue to worship the Lord. And in song.